Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, as we talk about cryptocurrency and the regulation of cryptocurrency, we have an outstanding guest. I'm joined today remotely by the former chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Christopher Giancarlo. Welcome to Talks on Law. Joel, it's good to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. And today we're talking about regulating crypto. And maybe we can tee it up with just a quick explanation of why it's so important. And perhaps we can use current events to touch on that. Yeah. Uh, why is it so important? Well, the reason it's so important uh, it, it is because it's much more than simply crypto as a tradable asset class. It's really about a new architecture uh, of, of value, an architecture of banking, finance, and money itself. You know, heretofore, that architecture, for the most part, has 90% of the money in circulation is is basically li- liabilities on proprietary balance sheets, right? Your listeners' retirement money is not stacks of $100 bills in a vault held by Fidelity that when they're ready to retire, Fidelity goes to the vault and gets the $100 bills. It, it's a liability on Fidelity's balance sheet. And when we move money around the globe, we move it from one balance sheet to another of these proprietary institutions. What crypto is all about is why are we relying, relying on private institutions to be the stores of value in the same way that not too long ago, we used to rely on private institutions and their communication rails to make a phone call. The reason it so, costs so much is be, to make a call overseas because you had to use the rails of Ma Bell or Alcatel or British Tel. And we moved that onto this thing called the internet, basically public architecture of communications. And what crypto is all about is why don't we use that same internet to, to, to store value, to, to record where value is and who's transferring value to who, as opposed to those proprietary institutions. And it's got challenges. And as we've seen, a lot of the early entries into this new architecture have made some old-fashioned mistakes. There's nothing about the mistakes they're made that are new or limited to this architecture, but nevertheless, they're making mistakes, and others are functioning spectacularly well. So, um, as we've seen in the early days of the railroads, there were railroad tycoons that made some awful mistakes, but we still rely on rail architecture, um, as we do in other forms of transportation architecture. This is about a new architecture of money, banking, and, 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 and finance. And like with the railroads, incredible amounts of wealth were generated lost, transferred uh, at the time of the railroads being created. And we're seeing that as well now with these uh, blockchain assets. Right. And yet, interestingly, the rails are an interesting analogy because prior to the railroads, the United States was a series of regional economies. Food grown in one region fed one region. Goods made in one region uh, served one region and one region only. The railroads turned the United States into a national economy. In the same way, the early days of the internet turned regional information networks into a global information network. And, and this new technology, this, this new architecture, internet architecture of finance could create a, a, a global uh, financial union that we've never had before. So new technologies have a really important societal impact. And I think this one is going to be uh, uh, no, no slouch to other technology innovations in bringing about a lot of societal impact. Well, why don't I start with what is probably an obvious question, but uh, sometimes those are the, the most difficult ones. Uh, why should cryptocurrencies be regulated or should they? Great question. I think it's safe to say that developed societies, democratic societies, have long accepted a role for governments um, when it comes to uh, people and their things of value. You know, every one of our 50 states has a banking regulator. Every one of our 50 states uh, regulate trusts and other vehicles that are used for safeguarding of people's things of value. At the federal level, we don't have one, we don't have two, we have three different banking regulators, the the Federal Reserve for large banks, the FDIC for those that they insure, 
and then the OCC, the uh, the Office of the Controller of Currency for uh, for other banking institutions. And you know, the Fed goes back to I think it's 1913. The Office of the Controller of Currency goes back even further than that. The FDIC goes back to the Depression. I mean, these these are institutions that have been around a long time. There's a great deal of societal acceptance. In fact. Societal dependence in the case of the FDIC for the, that insurance guarantee that the government provides on your banking deposits. So it asks the question, should there be regulation for a new architecture of money? It's a big, important question how that regulation works and where it should slot in. But I think the notion that there's a role for government in safeguarding people's hard-earned savings, uh, at least setting rules of the role for those institutions and commercial enterprises that interact with those that value and that those savings. I, I think that's one that I think you'd say a broad cross-section of American citizens would generally support. And I think, you know, you see where where things go wrong, there's an incredible demand. Why didn't the government come in and do something? Uh, how do we prevent something like this from happening in the future? Are you, are you seeing a bit of that now in the cryptocurrency space? Well, as, as one who um, started focusing on cryptocurrency as a regulator um, uh, more than a half a decade ago, uh, 2014, 2015, started focusing on Bitcoin. And then in 2017, uh, as chairman of the CFTC, created a regulatory pathway for Bitcoin and eventually Ethereum to operate within the regulatory framework of my agency. I put my actions where my mouth is. I, I think there is a right role for regulation. And I think done right, it works very well. I, I'm very proud to say we're now coming on the fifth year anniversary of the CFTC's regulation of Bitcoin futures. And that market is, operates very well, very liquid, very with great deal of stability. And it, it's not the source of any crisis right now. It's functioning as we intended it to do. I, I think the proof is right there that done right, regulation can work in a very positive way. Um, and I'm very proud of the, our track record and the work and, and the results after five years of that marketplace. Maybe we can talk about regulation at the federal level. With cryptocurrency, the blockchain decentralized technology of cryptocurrency makes I would think regulation a little bit more challenging than, you know, a sales tax, for example. Yes. Where is the government regulating, I suppose, cryptocurrencies? Well, Joe, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's more challenging than I think some of the simplistic notions that have been banded around. You have to, if you're going to regulate something, you have to un un start with understanding what it is. And uh, I, I've long maintained that at the heart, what crypto is, is a series of algorithms. You know, the, the first phase of the Internet, an Internet of Information, was made possible because of algorithms called HTML and HTTP that allowed computers to talk to each other and pass information from computer to computer. The next wave of the Internet, the Internet of Things, was powered by a new set of protocols called um, Bluetooth, for example, that allowed devices to talk to other devices. What crypto is, is a series of protocols that allow us to establish uh, where value is and who's transferring the value to whom on either broad public internets or private internets. But it, it, crypto is at heart. What Bitcoin is, is inherently a protocol that allows the recording of value, what Ethereum is. Now, can some of those protocols also be used for the purpose of capital formation? Yes, they can. And if so, there is a role for the SEC because it's the agency that Congress set up to oversee markets for capital formation. Can some of those protocols be used to establish a commodity-like instrument? Yes, in the case of Bitcoin, in which case there's a role for the CFTC, which is the institution that our Congress, with public support, set up to oversee commodity markets. Could some crypto be used for not capital formation and not co a commodity-like, but for other purposes, smart co contract development, et cetera? Yes, in which case there may be no role for the SEC. There may be no role for the CFTC. There may could, could be a role, though, for state banking regulators so or federal banking regulators. So to say that everything, is, as, as my predecessor, CFTC chairman, now chairman of the SEC, is everything is a security, I think is a broad overstatement. Hmm. You have to start with 
what is the underlying technology? What is the underlying network that that technology operates on and how does it function? If it functions to, to do capital formation, yes, there's a role for the SEC. Is that role the same as a security, a, a traditional security in, in a public company? I don't think so. So we need to start with the underlying technology. Once we understand it, then we can decide where is there a role for a federal regulator and where there is not a role for the federal regulator. Because in most applications, we do not have a federal regulatory regime for algorithms or software just as they are as algorithms and software. Only when they cross over to do some of these functions that we've deemed to be subject to federal regulation should there be a federal regulatory scheme. Was that hyperbole or did uh, Gary Gensler actually say something along the lines that everything's a security? It's not hyperbole. I, I don't have the exact quote, but it's, he's, he said it many times that he thinks that most cryptos are securities, most if not all. Uh, I think the only one he has fully said is not is Bitcoin. And I'm look, I, 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 Gary and I have worked very well. I have a great deal of admiration for his work at the CFTC. And I, I'm not meaning this to be uh, a personal criticism of the person, but I, I'm criticizing the concept that almost all cryptos are securities. They, they, if they function as a capital formation instrument, then they're subject to the securities laws. That doesn't necessarily make them a security um, at, because at heart, I believe all crypto is is algorithms right. uh, that do different things. If they do a capital formation thing, uh, then the SEC has a role that I would not never deny. Um, I'm a supporter of our federal structure and, 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 and our securities laws. And I think there's a key role for the SEC when those algorithms function as capital formation instruments. But when they do not function as capital formation instruments, I do not believe there's a role for the SEC. Well, why don't we jump into that topic a little more? Uh, what is cryptocurrency? Is it when is it a security? When is it not? I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you played a a, a pivotal role in in designating some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin a commodity. Is that right? And if so, what kind of led to that decision? It is right. I joined the CFTC in June of 2014. Uh, with the support, with my support, Chairman Massad, uh, then Chairman of the Agency at the time, uh, testified before Congress in December of 2014, positing that Bitcoin uh, was a, a commodity and therefore subject to CFTC jurisdiction. In 2015, again with my support, the CFTC, uh, in a case called the Coin Flip case, declared Bitcoin uh, as a matter of law to be subject to the, a commodity and subject to the CFTC. And then under my uh, leadership as chairman of the agency in 2015, we greenlighted the first regulated market, U.S. regulated market for Bitcoin futures uh, uh, under the exclusive jurisdiction of the CFTC. So uh, I played a role in the designation of that asset and also did some of the early work that eventually led to Ethereum uh, being determined to be under CFTC, to be a commodity and therefore under CFTC jurisdiction. But I've never moved away from my fundamental position that what all crypto is, is algorithms. They have different functions. And if they function in a way that is similar to a commodity, then they're subject to CFTC jurisdiction. Why don't we dig in a little deeper? What are your thoughts? When, when does uh, a cryptocurrency become a commodity? That's a great question. Um, I, I, the way I think about it is less from the point of view of sort of a temporal transition from you know a previous to being a commodity to becoming a commodity. I, I think of it more as um, how does a what what function does a crypto serve, and, um, and 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 in that function does it serve as a commodity? So what, what do we normally think of commodities? Think about oil or 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 wheat or corn or or minerals. There is no uh, individual issuer. They may be mined or drawn from the earth or farmed, but they're farmed by by many um, at many different points by many different enterprises and then uh, put into circulation in the public as opposed to being the exclusive effort of a, of a group of enterprising uh, associated persons, as you might with a corporation. And um, they're fungible. Um, one is the same as all the others. And so... Uh, you know, the analysis that we do at the CFTC, that we did at the CFTC for Bitcoin, Ethereum is 
you know, how are they more a commodity-like instrument, like an interest rate or a, or a gold mineral, than they are a security as in a, a corporate issuer, uh, an enterprise issuer. Um, so it's it's how does this algorithm function? Interesting. As opposed to how did it become something? So because cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum, one is treated equally to another. They're, the way that they're made doesn't make their, their value different, nor does the person who mined it make the value different. Are those all factors that, that went into the analysis? Yes. Yes. And I think the analysis has shown itself to be sound. I think there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of either individual actors or collective actors producing this commodity, which is very similar to what happens in most of the mineral and other commodities that are traditionally be, determined to be so, as opposed to, say, a security, which is issued by a single enterprise in order to fund their their enterprise. Yeah, maybe could you give an example of a, a crypto that behaves or is a security? I, I probably would prefer not. I don't want to be seen to be giving legal advice and determination. I think that the determination of whether something is a security or not has you know, a great deal of ramifications in terms of compliance. And I don't want somebody to point to, oh, former chairman said this or that, and uh, it put them into some sort of compliance jeopardy. Why don't I ask then, we talked about some crypto is a commodity, some can behave like a security, and then some can be something entirely different. Maybe you could touch on that as well. Uh, what, you know, what other roles can, I suppose, crypto products play? Well, let's take another example. Take stablecoins. Yeah. Stablecoins operate as a payment mechanism, not something that the CFTC traditionally regulates. It doesn't regulate PayPal or credit card companies something the SEC might regulate them as issuers of securities as their public companies, but not in their payment processing. It's an area where the banking authorities traditionally have jurisdiction, as do state authorities. And interestingly, um, the major stablecoin issuers are not currently subject to SEC or CFTC regulation. It's a bit of a jump ball in Washington, but most of the legislation that seeks to address stablecoins assigns responsibility to the Fed and Treasury not to either the SEC or the CFTC. So, you know, we've talked about digital commodities like Bitcoin. We've talked about digital securities without naming specific ones. But you can just guess that, at least in the minds of the current leadership of the SEC, most, most everything that's not Bitcoin or Ethereum is a digital security. But, but stablecoins are a third category where it looks as if at least the direction of travel is going to be away from the two market regulators toward the prudential regulators um, like the Fed or the uh, and, and or Treasury. There have been some recent calls for more regulation of stable coins. Is that something that you see coming down the, the pike? I actually think it's probably up until November, early November 2022. I think if you had polled leadership in Congress on both sides of the House, they would have said stable coin legislation is job number one. Um, I think because there's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's in interaction with the dollar um, and uh, concern about as, as, as potential stablecoins as a potential transmitter of financial stability risk. And now what would you say is the, the new priority? Uh, if it was stablecoins only recently, what's now on the agenda? Well, it's interesting what impact... Uh, the events of early November 22, and sp specifically um, uh, FDX's uh, collapse, uh, will have on some of the legislative efforts underway in Congress. So one bill that there was a great deal of momentum for called the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act that uh, will is written to give the CFTC greater authority in addition to authority over uh, digital commodity derivatives would also give it responsibility for digital commodity spot markets. Was this uh, a bill that you were involved or consulted on? or It's a bill that I have um, uh, publicly uh, written to the committee in support of uh, not not 
the bill in its entirety, but its specific granting of greater authority to the CFTC specifically, I'm, I'm publicly in favor of. And it will be interesting to see whether the collapse of, of FTX uh, perhaps slows some of the momentum. As I say, there's a great deal of, I think, impetus for stablecoin legislation. Uh, I don't think that that's changed in any way. Um, I There are um, many in Congress, including, um, as, as we're recording this, we don't yet know what the leadership of the key committees, the House Financial Service Committee, the, the Senate Banking Committee, who will re- result in the leadership. Um, but I, I can tell you that there is um, a great deal of criticism from the SEC on both sides of the aisle, but perhaps stronger on the Republican side, um, of the SEC not having established a working regulatory framework for um, crypto trading platforms. And I think that uh, uh, there's going to be a great deal of impetus, I think, for Congress to write some of that rulemaking and give direction to the SEC in the wake of the collapse of, of FTX. Now, let's put the collapse of FTX in some degree of perspective. Uh, at least the numbers I'm seeing have a magnitude of less than $20 billion. Now, that, that's, that's a big number, but, you know, it's a kind of loss that if, a, you know, if, a, if a J.P. Morgan suffered it, they still might make their annual number and maybe even make their quarterly number. So in the scheme of financial collapses, it's not that great. Um, the, but that's not to minimize it. Um, the other issue is, um, you, know, the, you know, people are not going to lose their mortgages or their retirement income for the most part. And if they are, you know, they're, they're people that I don't think of, you know, Congress necessarily losing a lot of sleep over. That's not to minimize the impact of people trading crypto, but it's not the same thing as what happened in 2008. With when mortgages. a lot of innocent people yep. lost their homes and jobs. Um, and, and in terms of the big investors in it, they're not a systemic risk. Okay, so a number of Silicon Valley venture funds lost their shirts in this. You know, it's not like uh, uh, Main Street banks or mortgage companies as they did in the financial crisis. Again, I'm not minimizing this because I think within the crypto industry, this is a major debacle. Sam Bankman-Fried is someone who a lot of people regarded very highly, and uh, everybody's pre- presumed to have innocence, and so we know. But it does; it is very shocking, uh, the extent and some of the allegations that are swirling around. Uh, one question I would ask is: Where were the adults in the room? Uh, where were the investors? You know, seasoned investors. That you know, the fellow is thirty years old or thirty-one. I mean, he's he's smart, um, but you know, smart and having seen the world and experienced it all are two different things. I'm, I'm in my early 60s, and you learn a lot over the course of a lifetime. And I would ask, you know, where, were the adult, where was the adult supervision for maybe some mistakes um, being made that perhaps a steadier hands around him might have warned against? So a lot's going to come out. We're going to learn why. I, I know that Michael Lewis is working on a book about Sam Bankman-Fried. I think that's going to be, let's go to the top of the bestseller list the day it comes out. Yeah. And probably to the film studios shortly thereafter. Yeah. And I'll certainly buy a copy myself because I want to know what happened. Well, why don't we, uh, since I have someone who understands it better than almost anyone, uh, why don't we talk about how the CFTC viewed regulating uh, cryptocurrencies and, you know, at the various levels, if you don't mind? Um, I, I suppose, why don't we start with what do you think is the most powerful lever uh, that your former agency has or had for regulating crypto? Well, first, we started with tone from the top. Our, our instinct was to engage. Our instinct was, let's not, you know, you know, there were a lot that said, look, if you allow Bitcoin futures to go forward, you're legitimizing crypto. And my response to that is it's not for us to legitimize or not legitimize it. The legitimacy is the fact that a free society wants to use it and Congress has not outlawed it. And therefore, our job is to engage with it. Our job is to bring it into the regulatory perimeter to set up a to bring those principles that we're charged to uphold. 
you know, free and fair markets, free from fraud manipulation, registration and rules of how do you safeguard customer assets? How do you set appropriate margin? Let's bring all that panoply of regular tools around this product so that those who wish to engage, those in the public who wish to buy it or sell it can do so in a transparent and, and, and healthy and well-supervised market. And those who are not interested, fine, don't be interested in it. it. But our job as regulators was not to make a value judgment. It was not for us to decide whether it was good for people, bad for people. They, people can make their own decisions about that. Our job was to make it operate in a safe and, and, and well-functioning. So that was tone from the top. And if I might jump in uh, to remind some of the viewers, that wasn't a unanimous decision at the time. There were plenty of people in the government who viewed cryptocurrency as digital cash for criminals yes. and something that the government shouldn't have any role in encouraging. Right. Now, I, what I would say there is within that government structure, the, 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 the responsibility for making that determination as a matter of law is for Congress. And if Congress had banned Bitcoin, then of course we would not have created a regulatory structure for it. But Congress did not. And if Congress does not, it's not up to a regulator that I'd say, well, you, since you have it, I'm going inter, to interspace my judgment that it's bad for people. That You can study the CFTC's charter and nowhere does it give that authority to make that value judgment. And so if Congress wished to make that value judgment, it has the authority and, 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 and the requirement to make that value judgment. In, in the absence of such, it was not for us to second guess. It was for us to make sure that that product therefore operated uh, in, in a free and transparent, well-functioning and well-supervised marketplace, which is what we did. The other, you know, you asked about tools. The other tools are the CFTC has, um, uh, it, it, one of the things that really distinguished it from the SEC, and I'm not sure our listeners are fully aware of this, the SEC is for the most part a rules-based, has a rules-based regulatory framework. The CFTC has a principles-based regulatory framework. It's quite a different thing. A, a CFTC commission's job is to uh, apply those principles to an application and determine that the general principles are being met, but not to then specify specifics around that. So one approach to Bitcoin futures on one exchange might be entirely different than another. They both meet the principle, but they do so in a different way. It's a very much uh, not to determine a one-size-fits-all approach to markets, but let a thousand flowers bloom as long as they're all faced in the same degree of sunlight which is our principles. And so that gave us, I think, a certain flexibility, uh, a certain aptitude toward, uh, let's look at it on a principle basis, and if it meets the principles, go forward. And then the third tool, and this is, again, something that makes the CFTC very unique. The CFTC actually has a mandate for innovation. The CFTC came about because arguably the most important invention in financial markets of the 20th century was the financial future. What do I mean by that? Well, up until the 1970s, virtually the only type of hedging of commodity instruments you could do were things that came out of the ground. You could hedge the price of wheat or corn or oil or, or gold, um, things that came out of the ground. But the notion that you could hedge a financial risk was unique. And as the dollar was going off the gold standard, it became really important for the world if they were going to stay on the dollar, no longer anchored to gold, that they had a way of hedging the interest rate risk and the foreign exchange risk. And a couple of brilliant inventors in Chicago, Leo Malamed and Dr. Richard Sandor, uh, working with Milton Friedman, came up with the notion of hedging different interest rates or hedging exchange rates, and the financial future was born. And Washington deemed that innovation so important that they were afraid to put it under the SEC's ambit, lest the impetus toward uh, consumer protection and investor protection uh, hindered the development of that product in its cradle. And so they took a bureau out of the Department of Agriculture, renamed it the CFTC, and put these products under it and gave the CFTC a mandate for innovation. And under that mandate, I did an analysis when at the CFTC between the year 2000 and 2017, when I did this, the CFTC had greenlighted more new financial products than virtually every other regulator in the world combined because of that mandate for innovation. 
So it's not that surprising to me as we're now coming up with a new type of financial innovation as we began the interview, a new architecture of value that I think Congress is once again looking to the CFTC and that mandate for innovation to take a lead role in managing uh, the regulatory structure around this new product. What about while you were at the CFTC, what's an example of regulatory action that you took toward uh, a cryptocurrency? Yeah, so so I'll put our uh, record uh, for enforcement against crypto scams, crypto fraud, crypto manipulation up against any uh, record of enforcement as being second to none. We had a very, I felt it was vitally important. In fact, in, in all my testimony, I said at the same time that we're showing an openness to this innovation and looking to accommodate it, we are going to be, have an iron fist against those who try to manipulate it. Don't get the idea that an openness to innovation also means a, uh, a, a sloppiness or a uh, unwillingness to uh, prosecute uh, those who seek to um, uh, deceive others or uh, defraud others. And I think that was a very important statement. And the proof is in our track record, which uh, during the, as, as Reuters did a, a lengthy study, our, our track record during the Trump years actually was stronger than during the Obama years. And and that's not, a, 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 I'm not calling anybody out there other than to say, you know, the narrative is that somehow it was a light touch enforcement during the Trump years. Well, not at the CFTC. It was a very strong touch. And I felt it was important if we were going to be open to the innovation, we also needed to be very, very strong on the enforcement side. I was curious if you could give an example of an enforcement action where a cryptocurrency was manip being manipulative or was uh, acting in an illegal manner where you or the CFTC came in. So, I mean, some of them had some really fun, funny names that I just can't recall right now. But there, there was a couple of cryptos that were, you know, complete, you know, scam um, uh, that were being marketed, you know, as the next best thing. And, and, um, and, and we shut a number of those down and brought civil charges and worked with the DOJ to bring criminal charges against the purveyors of those. Um, I, I think there was one called My Big Coin. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the years pass and old geezers like me have short-term memories lost, so uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name of them. But there was some really, you know, it, it, the name alone was the giveaway that this was uh, a scam, and we went after those hard. Were you involved in any of the kind of pump-and-dump uh, crypto uh uh, going after some of those pump and dump crypto schemes? Yes. Yeah. Now, the one thing you have to understand is I, I served as chairman. I served at the commission my full five-year term, two and a half as a minority commissioner under President Obama, and then two and a half as chairman under President Trump. Uh, enforcement actions are take a long time to germinate. Um, you know, by the time you begin the subpoena process to the time you might get a judgment, is really under two years. I mean, it, it may be much longer than that. And so a number of cases that were begun under my authority, but not announced because we were in the subpoena and, and investigation stage, have resulted under my successors. I, I won't say which they are. I don't want to disclose information about the commencement of enforcement actions and others. But um, needless to say, our enforcement team was very aggressive. We felt a new and untested innovation needed to have a lot of adult supervision and, and we you know we worked to bring that well in in some cases it really felt like a wild west uh fraudster riddled it still is i mean there's still still way too much fraud way too much manipulation way too much um uh, wash trading and, and 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 fraudulent transactions and and and, and um, artificial volume levels i mean it, look it's it's an industry that is rife with misconduct um probably not too dissimilar from the early days of the railroad and and other early technologies it, you know with, and and then you combine that with the fact that you know most of the people in it are in their 20s, a lot of young men, the same population category that pays higher than average insurance prices for automobile insurance because of their risk tolerance. Uh, 
And, <laughs> you know, until you've lived a while, you, you know, when you're young, you take a lot of risk. There's, there's, and, and some of that is criminal activity and, and some of it is just risky behavior. It, that's just an unfortunate fact of life in this industry. I don't think it's indictment of that the value of this new architecture. But I think it is absolutely the reason why we need sound, sensible regulation. We need regulators who are uh, not afraid to bring force of law to um, enforce good conduct, but at the same time, don't let that then blind them to the promise of the innovation. There's nothing in the mandate of the SEC or the CFTC that says their job is to maintain the status quo. Right. There, there's nothing about that job that says yours is to maintain financial service industry circa 2010 at all costs. Right. You, you've got to follow where the innovation is taking you, but you've got to police it with a, with a very strong hand. And with innovation as well. So when you're going after a new technology, were you having to innovate? Oh, absolutely. That's a great point. It's a great point. That was one of the hardest things is, is, you know, if you think about the way regulators generally regulate finance or, in fact, any ecosystem, they look at it and they say, OK, where are the intermediaries? Where are the bottlenecks? Where are the, the choke points? OK, we'll license them to do that job. And in return, they'll provide us with information and we'll monitor conduct through these licensed intermediaries. Well, what do you do in a world where the technology allows the decentralization of those centralizers? Well, one response of regulators might be to say, well, we don't like that. So we're going to actually require that the status quo prevail and you can't disintermediate them. I think that's the wrong approach because, you know, in return for that centralization, you're granting them many monopolies. I think the right approach to say, OK, fine, if, if this world is going to start decentralizing because that's what the technology is, let's move away from this entity based over reliance on these centralizers and go to an activity based approach to regulation. And the same tools that are allowing the decentralization to happen actually provide tools to regulators to do a much better job overseeing a decentralized world. Because why? Because they can become nodes on the blockchain in which this is operating and use pattern recognition and artificial intelligence to actually see the activity that they're trying to prescribe rather than be highly reliant on these centralizers to report that activity. You know, the dirty little secret in regulation is that regulators are highly dependent on whistleblowers and newspaper articles and regulated entities to tell them what's going on in the market. I'd like to make regulators much more aware because they're seeing it firsthand day by day, as opposed to relying on others to tell them what's going on. I used to refer to the CFTC as aspiring to be a market intelligent regulator, become the most, in, the most intelligent person in the room as to what's going on in the markets rather than relying on intelligent people at banks or other centralizers to say what's going on. Follow the market. The market is moving from a highly centralized system, which is basically 20th century global finance, to a more decentralized system, which may be where the 21st century is, is directionally headed, whether it gets to full decentralization or just moves across the continuum, you know, less dependent on centralization, more decentralization, then the job of regulators is to follow the action, not to say, we liked it the way it was, it needs to stay the way it was. And how do you do that? Well, you say, okay, fine, you're, you're now all operating on a network. We want to be on that network too. And we want to have act, uh, insight to everything that's happening on the network. And it could be anonymous, um, but we want to see everything and using our tools of pattern recognition, if we see, if we have probable cause to see um, actions that indicate misconduct, then we can get a subpoena from a judge and unmask the participants and get to the heart of the matter. No longer are we entirely reliant on centralizers that themselves are monitoring networks, proprietary networks that they operate. Regulators become themselves nodes on a, um, on a public architecture where they can see all activity uh, and therefore use their own tools to determine what conduct looks suspicious and needs to be further investigated. Much less reliant on anecdotal after the fact reports and much more aware of actual activity in real time. I, I think that's gotta be the future. I, I refer to it as quantitative regulation or quant reg. Let's make regulators as quantitatively knowledgeable as markets using data analytics 
um, as, as some of the best, um, you know, analytics firms are out there. I do occasionally hear industry people, in some cases, speaking of regulators as being, you know, behind the times or behind the technology. And it sounds like what you're saying is, let's step in front of it. Let's, let's be on the cutting edge. Yeah. Look, at Facebook or Amazon or eBay can analyze transaction data and know to a second, you know, that I've now looked at my fifth guitar. This guy wants to buy one. Let's send him some adverts. You know, why can't regulators look at, well, this is the fifth time this person's wiring money to some dodgy bank in Nigeria. Let's take a look. As opposed to relying on some, you know, bank or other intermediary to say, oh, this guy's wiring money to some dodgy bank in Nigeria. Why, why not make regulators frontline regulators rather than totally reliant on monopolists, you know, why hand out monopolies in order to get back information, which is what regulators do? Why not make regulators frontline regulators and then therefore take down barriers to entry so you can have a lot of new entrants and a lot more competitive action in markets? A quick pause for those attorneys listening for Sealy Credit. The code for this interview is 92291. Again, that's 92291. And now back to the interview. I wanted to talk about another challenge, which is when you're going after a company, you know who the CEO is, you know who the shareholders are, you have a physical address. Maybe it's a, an office in New York, an office in LA. What do you do when you're going after basically a protocol or, you know, in some cases, a DAO. Uh, how does that work, and what additional challenges does that present? Well, this is yeah, this is really where we get into the cutting edge of where things are now, and I think regulators are grappling with this. Recently, the CFTC brought charges in a case called Oki DAO against the uh, developers of the software, but interestingly, also participants in the blockchain. Uh, that were engaged in staking and other activity. And that's caused an outcry in the industry. I, I think it be, speaks a regulator is trying to come to terms with how do they regulate activity that takes place in decentralized finance. For, and the reasons that you said, you know, the inability to identify a CEO and, and a brick and mortar building somewhere in some city that can go knock on the door, hand over a subpoena is going to be a real challenge. It's, but it's a challenge that regulators are going to have to step up to. As I said, they don't have the option to say, well, we don't like that, and therefore it can't be. Only Congress can make that determination. Regulators, as they began the conversation, don't have that authority. They've got to follow the action and, and work their way through this. I think I don't think we have yet the solution. I'm not sure that CFTC's approach to going after participants in that decentralized um, blockchain are... Uh, is necessarily a winning formula for anybody involved, including the regulator. So I think um, there's going to have to be a lot of evolution here. But that's that's the creative beauty of this whole thing. You know, when when air transport came out, all those well developed uh, rules for railroads didn't necessarily work. And so we had to come up with a new regulatory structure for air transportation. Uh, you know, each new technology brings new challenges. And uh, it's the kind of thing that got my juices flowing as a regulator. And if I were back in the job, um, I, I wouldn't be poo-pooing this. I'd be getting my team together and say, okay, we got to figure this out. This is, this is where the direction of travel is. Let's come up with an equally creative approach to, to asserting the principles that we're formed and the mission we're formed to do in this new environment. Is that why, you know, given your role at the CFTC where you're overseeing so much uh, did you find that the crypto or the Web3 uh, aspect of the job, did it have a particular draw because it was new and different? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was, it, you know, I, I think that's the exciting th um, opportunity of serving in public, uh, in, in public service uh, is to understand the core mission, but approaching it in creative and, and, and open and thoughtful ways. Uh, I, 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 I find the CFTC, I, I was delighted to, and, and honored to serve as chair of the CFTC. I think it's one of the finest regulators in Washington. But that mandate for innovation gives it a certain degree of 
creative thought and and uh, openness to innovation and new ideas that's not necessarily standard operating procedure in a lot of Washington regulators. And um, I relished, and I and I actually, and it's not a uh, it's not a political thing. I think my predecessors on both sides of the aisle relish the CFTC's role as as being one of the more thoughtful, um, open-minded regulators. If any, to me, it makes sense. If any regulator is going to step up to the challenge of DeFi and, and, and crypto, it's going to be the CFTC because of that tradition of innovation and openness. Um, uh, and, and in, in a fast-moving world, uh, it's a very exciting role to be in. Chris, there's another topic I wanted to discuss with you. That's related to a special type of cryptocurrency, fiat crypto or central bank cryptocurrency. I guess first off, maybe we should get on the table. You've played a role in this. Did you create a foundation related to this topic? Yes. Um, in in uh, January 2020, I created the Digital Dollar Foundation, a 501c3 charitable educational institution. And uh, with that foundation, we then created the Digital Dollar Project, working with uh, Accenture and other increasing number of partners for the purpose of exploring both the, the opportunities and challenges of a, a central bank, a U.S. central bank digital currency, a U.S. digital dollar. In fact, we coined the term digital dollar. It's since been picked up for a lot of other uses. Um, but our notion was a U.S. central bank digital currency. So this is a very important point I want to make. The digital dollar project does not advocate that the U.S. deploy a digital dollar, a central bank digital currency. It does advocate, though, that the U.S. not yield leadership in developing the key components of interop global interoperability for central bank digital currency um, to any of its economic competitors or economic adversaries. And we advocate experimentation with the U.S. digital dollar. So when and if Congress takes up the decision to deploy a U.S. central bank digital currency, there will be a body of work available to them to make important design choices. Our, our biggest fear is the U.S. does no work. Five years from now, it wakes up and says, oh, my goodness, the, Ch the Chinese digital yuan is now dominating 25% of the globe. The U Europeans have launched their digital euro. They're gaining influence. We need a digital dollar. And then in a classic Washington Memorial Day weekend, um, they draft something and chuck it out on a Tuesday, and it's terrible and does more to undermine the dollar than it does to support it. And I joke in my recently published book, Crypto Dad, the Fight for the Future of Money, that uh, money is too important to be left to central bankers. And I mean no disrespect to central bankers, but it's a play on um, a French premier uh, who at the end of World War I, looking back on the carnage of the war, said, you know, maybe war is too important to be left to the generals. In a similar way, I think maybe money, especially the dollar, is too important to be left just to the central bankers to their own devices. Society, all of us who might someday use a digital dollar, have a lot to say as to what design choices issues of privacy, issues of censorship, issues of convertibility, uh, of, of devaluation. Um, all of those are issues that I think a free society has a right to voice their concerns in, um, as well as to experiment with the opportunities. The, the opportunity for financial inclusion is one that gets debated every day. And if you look, it's being debated on academic arguments, but on very little practical experimentation data. And we intend to provide that experimentation data. Well, I want to talk, I guess, about some of the legal issues that the digital dollar or a central bank dollar, uh, central bank uh, cryptocurrency would raise in the United States. But I guess a quick Econ 101 point to make. You mentioned how you don't want the U.S. to lose out. Maybe you could quickly explain to our viewers who aren't remembering their econ classes, you know, why do we get so much benefit from so much of the world using and storing wealth in the dollar? Yeah. So, and this goes actually go back to my commodities work, the CFTC, where I became very aware of the fact that most of the world's major commodities, energy commodities, building commodities, food commodities, like oil, like iron ore, like um, uh, wheat and corn and soybeans, are priced in dollars. 
And they're priced in dollars for historical reasons as well as liquidity reasons. And the reason is that America's got the biggest and most liquid price-setting markets in the world, regulated by that you know, relatively unknown agency, the CFTC. And it's the quality of regulation, the quality of those markets that makes the world hedge its need for wheat or soybeans or iron ore or oil in American markets. And because they buy those goods in dollars, because those goods are priced in dollars, all the world has to hold, every country in the world's got to hold dollars. If you're going to buy oil in virtually every country in the world, you're going to pay for it in dollars, so you've got to have some dollars. The other reason is that in uncertain economic times, uh, which come and they go, but they always seem to return, the world reaches for something that they deem to be safe because the world, the U.S. is the world's largest economy, because the taxing power of the federal government is unlimited to pay its or it's relatively unlimited to pay its debts, holding U.S. debt, which are called Treasury securities. Is a, is a place to go for safety when all the world is getting rough or wars are breaking out or threatening to break out or other things are going on. And so for this reason, the, the U.S. government uh, can sell its debt to the world. And because the world has to hold dollars to buy things in, in important commerce, the world holds dollars, buys our debt. So that's one of the reasons why the, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. It allows the United States to, to basically fund deficit fund all of its operations, all of our social benefits, uh, whether that be Social Security or welfare or, or bridges and tunnels being built, are pretty much built on the fact that the U.S. issues debt instruments, basically borrows from all those foreign countries to build those bridges or make those welfare payments or to pay those Social Security payments. It's We are a debtor nation. We fund ourselves by selling debt to the rest of the world. It's a multi-trillion dollar investment in our economy. Exactly. And I think it's Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, refers to it as the exorbitant privilege enjoyed only by the United States. And we can debate, you know, it, it, it whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And you want to keep that privilege rolling along. But, you know, for now, right, we, we, if that privilege ends tomorrow, we're all in deep tapioca. It's not a good thing. So uh, we, we've got to keep that privilege going. And so here's what's going on in the world right now. A over 100 countries are actively exploring developing sovereign digital money. That includes 50 of them that are in advanced stages of exploration, 19 of the G20. It also includes China that has developed something called their ECNY, which is their digital currency, which they've already placed in over 240 million wallets of Chinese citizens. And that figure is 18 months old. It may be a lot more than that by now. Europe has said that by 2025, they will deploy a digital euro. It's my own personal estimation based upon thorough work. I've served on a Hoover, a Hoover Institute one-year study of the digital yuan that within 10 years, a third of the globe could be either directly using China's digital currency or using what looks like a domestic currency, but it's actually powered by Chinese technology. You could imagine Venezuela having a digital currency that's powered by Chinese technology, but has the, uh, uh, the Venezuelan, I think it's the peso, as its, as its image. Does that mean that it's essentially pegged to the digital yuan? It would be based on Chinese yuan technology, uh, whether it's pegged to it would be a, a, a separate choice. I, I think a lot of things will remain probably pegged to the dollar. But, if, you know, China's already a bigger trading partner to most of the world's countries than is the United States. And you generally peg to the country you trade with. So it also, the answer is yes, it could become pegged to Chinese currency at a certain time. But if, you know, China's building your port facilities or your water purification plant, such as in East Africa or in South America, they may require you to pay them in their digital yuan. Now, the digital yuan is a very sophisticated instrument. It has some real technological sophistication, but it also has complete surveillance and censorship capability. If you're a Chinese citizen and you criticize the Chinese regime, tomorrow your, your digital money will be turned off from being able to get the train out of your village or to pay the rent that you used to pay on your apartment, and you'll have to downsize to a smaller one. Incredible power, incredible leverage. Great surveillance. Um, I wish to say that the digital euro 
would not be used for surveillance, but there are some prominent European promoters of it who are on YouTube going around saying we'll be able to track every transaction. So the design choices we make in digital money are critically important. Two years ago, when we launched the Digital Dollar Project, almost three years now, the U.S. wasn't, wasn't really considering this. And that's fine, but we did advocate that the U.S. take it seriously and start thinking about what design choices it might make if it were to do this. Well, in those three years, things have changed a lot. The Biden administration has declared work on central bank digital currency to be of the utmost urgency. And Fed Chairman Powell has said similar, has made similar remarks. So we moved beyond the U.S. is indifferent to the United States now has a formal policy of advancing exploration. We at the Digital Dollar Project have also evolved and our now focus is on operating sandboxes where private sector actors like American banks, American payment providers like MasterCard and Visa, American retailers like Walmart can go and experiment what a central bank digital currency might, how it might function in the United States. And the goal is to drive those policy choices in a way that not only suits American consumers, American businesses, but also suits a free society. And last year, we published a set of privacy principles that we think are working with our advisory committee that we think are critical for a U.S. digital dollar that are worthy of a free society. And as you might expect, privacy, freedom from censorship, freedom from surveillance for lawful transactions is at the top of our list of elements that we think needs to be built in as design choices into a U.S. digital dollar. Chris, this was on my uh, outline with a bullet that I wanted to talk to you about, which is we like the concept of our own privacy. We, we like personal freedom without government surveillance or monitoring. And the idea of a, a crypto dollar where the government could go back and, and trace uh, you know, where, where it was spent, where it was exchanged, what that means in terms of relationships is pretty startling. I guess, why don't we start with the reality that we're not exactly in a fully private world right now, considering, as you mentioned earlier, most of our money and most of our transactions do leave a digital footprint. Uh, how, how would the current digital wealth differ from the type of privacy issues in a crypto digital dollar? Well, let's let's put Bitcoin aside for a second, which actually is a spectacular instrument of, of digital privacy. But look at stable coins, which are increasingly growing in utilization by some of the very forward thinking people that are very excited about digital money. There's no privacy protection whatsoever in stable coins. I, I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, Giancarlo, what are you doing? Why would you support a digital dollar when the government's going to surveil you? Leave it to the private sector. And my response to that is, how well has that worked out for you in the Internet of Information with social media that tracks everything you say and do and not only, not only surveils it, but censors it? The difference is they're not subject, private enterprise is not subject to the First Amendment uh, freedom of speech or the Fourth Amendment freedom of privacy, but the federal government is so designed correctly, a digital dollar could actually be a greater pr provider of, of privacy than a private-operated stablecoin, which has no privacy protection by law. And so the notion that you know pr a private sector-conducted money is is you privacy is protected, government-run, you're surveilled, is just a is just false, right? We can't make that assumption. Now that doesn't mean that governments won't abuse it, and and that's why. We at the Digital Dollar Project are are so um, focused on these design choices that might go into a digital dollar. If we get privacy wrong in a digital dollar, people will flee it to other instruments like maybe Bitcoin. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but but the fact of the matter is it would undermine the dollar. But the flip side is also true. If we get privacy right in a digital dollar compared to, say, the yuan or a digital euro, People might flock to a digital dollar. We could get three more generations of the world flocking to the dollar because it becomes the world's most private instrument if we get the design choices right. And, you know, in a free society, I think it's right that people for lawful transactions enjoy privacy. You know, if I choose to give to 
um, Planned Parenthood, I give to, decide to give the right to life. That's not my government's business. And you can imagine a left wing or right wing government may not want to know exactly that, may want to censor it. As long as Congress hasn't banned it, that's my private business and nobody else's. And getting privacy right is not about doing you know, um, illegal things. It's about a free people should enjoy freedom of their economic activity simply because that's a matter of our personal autonomy and it's nobody else's business. Should the digital dollar be a permissionless uh, currency? It would be really hard to build a, sort of a Bitcoin blockchain for a central bank directed money. You know, it, it, it's a public good. The, the government has a role to play. And I think that model is challenging. But I, I, I do think that a model, what, what, what is money today, right? What is money today? Well, aside from the 10% that's cash, 90% of the money in circulation today is a liability of a proprietary institution, a bank, a, a retirement fund, an insurance company. It's on their balance sheet. When we talk about digital money, we're really talking about a type of digital fiat that exists on a, uh, a blockchain independent of the proprietary liabilities of commercial enterprises. And it has a resilience from the failure, single points of failure by any given bank or finance company. And um, it, 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 there's going to be a role for government in overseeing the health of that blockchain and licensing who can write to that blockchain. So it's not going to be some narrow area network. It's going to be a much more wide area blockchain, but probably those who can actually write to it uh, would have some degree of responsibility for misbehavior and, and working that out. And there's many different models of this being experimented, but and it's exactly why the United States needs to get in the game of experimentation to see which is the right balance of our, of our rights as a free people with the government's responsibility to maintain a, a stable financial system. I think about this uh, in, as such a fascinating experiment that you're you're playing a role in um, such an interesting innovation and there's two sides to everything so you, you think well with the digital dollar imagine if we put a country on uh, a sanctions list or you know then we could turn off their dollars or if we if someone stole a uh, hundred million dollars from you know or 20 million dollars from a hospital or 50 million dollars from a bank well we could reverse that or we could seize it uh, but at the same time, those are the types of concerns that might make people skeptical or or have fear of using a currency where the government has so much power. Absolutely. Um, the, the great thing, though, about going from an analog financial system where the limitations are set by the physical or the uh, uh, engineering limitations of the instrument to a digital system where all the tolerances are design choices, is that we can come to some you know, social consensus as to where the balance points are and write that into the code itself. Think about financial inclusion. You know, in a world of 8 billion people, a billion and a half either don't have the necessary credentialed identity or don't wish to uh, have that, to provide that degree of identity and therefore are excluded from financial services. But when you go to a digital type of money, um, uh, the, the need to disclose that level of information, again, is a design choice. It's not, you need it in a bank-based system because every bank's got to maintain an account for you. But once you go to a digital money system, you no longer need that. So if we want identity and where that identity is housed and under what security cho choices and when can the government get it or when can a commercial ent ent enterprise get it, those are all design choices. And so, again, we need to be in the game of experimenting with these policy choices now so we come to some consensus as to what are those choices. Say, for example, in the Chinese digital yuan, the Chinese people aren't making those choices. Oh, certainly not. The party is making those choices and telling them this is your money and, and everything else is banned and this is what you got. That can't be the road we follow in a free society. We need to be out there experimenting and we go to the government and say this is what we'll tolerate in terms of your knowledge of who we are, and this is what we won't tolerate. This, these are the choices a free society would make and what its money should look like in the future. And once you go to a digital format, the range of choices is so much greater and the precision is so much greater. Look, digital money is coming. 
sovereign or non-sovereign, some combination of the two, the future of banking, finance, and money itself is going to be digital. It is going to be token-based. It's going to be blockchain-based. The question is, how? To, just as I did at the CFTC, let's not sit back and let this innovation pass us by. Let's engage with it. I have the same approach to digital money. The future of money is digital. It's blockchain-based. Let's get and engage with it now and hopefully come up with the right policy choices that reflect, reflect the choices of a, of a free and independent uh, populace that wishes to have economic liberty and, and their economic integrity personal to themselves and not purloined by either their government or their social media companies or big technology companies. That's our private business. Let's get the balance right between privacy and national stability and law enforcement. Chris Giancarlo is the former chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the co-founder and executive chairman of the Digital Dollar Project. Chris, what a pleasure. I really appreciate your time and in such a hectic crypto environment. I understand that's a scarce resource in and of itself. Hey, Joel, pleasure is mine. Really good talking with you, and I look forward to doing it again soon. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.